0: Know, and I want you to tell them how blessed that you are and how good God has been to you this week. We're gonna to attempt to do some worship tonight before we before we get into our message. Uh, so how many has God been good to this week, really? Oh, y'all gotta convince me better. How many has God been good to this week? Alright. Yes. Well, alright. Well, I want you to sing along with me this afternoon. God
1: is able. He will never fail. He is almighty God. He's greater than all we see. Greater than all we ask. And he has done great things. Lifted up. I'll sing it. He defeated the grave. Raised to life. In his name we overcome for the Lord. Our God is able. God is with. God is on our side And He will make a way Far above all we know Far above all we hope And He has done great things Lifted up He defeated the grave raised to life Our God is able, in His name we overcome, for the Lord our God is able. Oh, let me hear you sing this. God is with us, and He will go before. He will never leave us. He will never leave us. God is for us, and He has open arms. He will never fail us. He will never fail us. Lift it up. He defeated the grave. Race to life, our God is able, in His name we overcome, for the Lord our God is able. Lifted up, He defeated the grave, race to life. Our God is able, in his name we overcome.
0: Give the Lord a big hand clap of praise this morning. Yes, well, Amen. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer real quick. Lord, we thank you for this day. Welcome to some. We thank you, God, too. for all that you do for us, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for loving us. And God, I ask, Lord, that you would just bless tonight. I pray, Lord, you would bless the message, God, as it's as it's brought forth. I pray you bless the messenger, God. And Lord, just anoint and God, use tonight. Lord, thank you for all that you do in this place. And God, all that you do outside of these walls as well. Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.
2: Am I on? There we go. If, if you're not familiar with what's going on for the next few weeks, it's Missions Emphasis Month. And uh, we'll be talking about missions and outreach, and uh, if we have missionaries that are coming in speaking. Now, Preacher will be back Sunday, and we're excited about that. Man, I've missed him. Looking forward to seeing him back in his spot. But I just want to talk to you about something. Obviously, we, we talk about money a lot during Missions Emphasis Month, because in order for a, a missions program to go, you've got to have the funds in order to make it go. But I want to talk to you about something different for just a second tonight. In the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 8. A lot of what we pattern our missions program after is in that verse in in Acts one eight, where it talks about uh, that that after the Holy Spirit was come upon them, it will give them the power that they may be witnesses of me both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And and how we how we say that here or express that here or pattern that here at Temple is we look at our missions program uh, from the standpoint of of here, near, and far away. Now, I want everybody to be looking for a place where you can get involved in, if possible, all three of those categories, here, near, and far away. But specifically tonight, I want to talk to you about near, or, or, or here, right here, where we live, Colman, Alabama, this this spot right here, this mission field that we live in. Uh, one of the things I want you to think about I understand that that if you have never shown someone how to be saved, you're saved, you're a Christian, you know what you did, but you've never personally taken the Bible and shared the gospel with someone else and had them trust the Lord as you led them through that process, then you have the opportunity, starting on uh, the, the first week of November, I forget the exact date of when that particular class starts, but right back there is the the TBI registration table. There are books, there are sign-up registration forms. One of the classes that we'll be teaching is a personal evangelism class. And what that class will do is it'll teach you how that you can take your Bible and share the gospel with someone else. It's a lot simpler than what you might think. The the first thing that that we'll talk about, the first thing that you'll learn to do, is how to share your own story. Just tell somebody else what you did and what God did for you, and then we'll take you from there. But if you're interested in wanting to know how I can share the gospel with someone else, how I can lead someone to Christ, a great place to start is in that personal evangelism class. I encourage you, uh, if you've ever thought about uh, taking a class at TBI, this would be a great class for you to take advantage of. And that's how you can get involved in mission work here, right here where we live. Uh, Because the Bible talks about making disciples. As you win somebody, as you lead them to Christ, the next thing you do is you disciple them. And you teach them to do what you did. And then it becomes a multiplication. You win somebody, you teach them, then they win somebody, and then this thing begins to snowball. And as much as we want Temple Baptist Church to grow, and we talk about numbers here a lot, and we want to see a full auditorium on Sunday and even on Wednesday, really what we want to do is we want to go from here out there and win people to Christ. The purpose of the church is really not to be an evangelistic tool. The purpose of Temple Baptist Church is not for you to go and get people and bring them in here to get saved. The purpose of the church is to train you to go out there and win the lost where they are. And then they'll come back here to be trained to do the same thing. So I want to encourage you. One of the facets or areas that you can be thinking about how you can get involved in mission work is right here where you live uh... in sharing your own story and sharing the gospel with your friends neighbors relatives co-workers and one of the ways you can learn to do that or you can be trained to do that is through that personal evangelism class at tbi that starts the first week of november so be thinking about that and praying about that right now we're going to show you a video it's uh... brother jonathan matthew's video about his ministry and what's going on in brazil we currently support him so this is a guy that if, if you give to missions on a regular basis You're helping support his ministry there. You have a part in what's going on here. And so you can be excited about that and know that you're participating in this ministry. So watch this video, and when it concludes, he'll come up and have a word for us tonight, okay?
3: Welcome to Sao Paulo, Brazil. This is where we've called home for the last 12 years of our lives. And this is where God has called us to serve him as church planting missionaries. I could say a lot about Sao Paulo, but to sum it up in two statements, it's big and it's full of people. The city was founded in 1554 by 12 Jesuit priests who established a settlement to be an outpost to evangelize the native Indians. For centuries, Sao Paulo existed in relative obscurity. It was one of the poorest and most desolate regions of Brazil. But over the last hundred years, everything has changed. Sao Paulo is now a megacity. It's considered the most populous city in Brazil, the Americas, and the entire southern hemisphere. The city proper is made up of 39 districts with a population of 21 million people. But the greater Sao Paulo region is one of the larger urban agglomerations in the world. With 32 million inhabitants, this is second only in size to Tokyo, Japan. It's the capital of the state of Sao Paulo, Brazil's most populous and wealthiest state. Sao Paulo exerts strong international influence in commerce, finance, arts, and entertainment. Having the largest economy by gross domestic product in Latin America, the city is home to the Sao Paulo Stock Exchange. And Paulista Avenue is Brazil's Wall Street, and it's the economic core of the city. The city makes up 12% of all Brazilian GDP and more than a third of the production of goods and services of the entire country, and it's home to two-thirds of the entire country's international companies. Many experts predict that Sao Paulo will have the third-highest economic growth in the world between 2011 and 2025. It is a cosmopolitan, melting pot city, home to some of the largest Arab, Italian, and Japanese immigrant communities in the world. Sao Paulo is also home to the largest urban Jewish population in the world. Research conducted by the University of Sao Paulo shows the city's high ethnic diversity. When asked if they are descendants of foreign immigrants, 81% of people reported yes, nearly a third claiming to be of Italian descent. It's known for its unreliable weather, the size of its helicopter fleet, its architecture, severe traffic, and skyscrapers. There is no doubt that Brazil is a rich country and Sao Paulo is its richest city. But there is always a flip side to the story and things are not always as they appear to be. Rapid urbanization and population growth have caused many problems. Sao Paulo grew too fast, resources were not available to keep up with the swelling population. And housing is one of the major problems the city is facing today. Migrants who cannot afford proper housing are forced to build temporary housing without proper utilities. And these settlements are known as favelas. Poverty in Brazil is most visually represented by the various favelas that a person can see visiting the city. Slums in the country's metro areas and remote upcountry regions. They suffer with economic underdevelopment and below-par standards of living. These shanty towns are built with scrap materials such as iron sheets and wood or really whatever a person can get their hands on. Basic sanitation, water, electricity, and sewage system may not be available and this leads to a spread of diseases. Such locations are all overpopulated and located in areas not fit for residential use, such as flood zones and areas subject to landslides. Eventually they are replaced or evicted. The slums are not built according to any laws or safety regulations, and residents are constantly at risk of being killed in landslides or fires. Sao Paulo today is home to more than 2,000 slums, and more than 2 million people call slums their home. Caught in the poverty cycle, families' incomes are structurally limited. As a result, they are unable to afford proper housing. And they're unable to afford proper housing because Sao Paulo is one of the most expensive cities in the world to live in. This rapid rate of illegal occupation of urban land has led to serious problems, not only to the residents but also to the society and the environment of the city. Crime is also a serious problem as well. Homicides, muggings, robberies, kidnappings, and gang violence are common and out of control. Police brutality and corruption in the political arena are widespread. The poverty is in part attributed to the economy and its inequality. Brazil ranks among the world's highest nations on the Index of Inequality. The poor segment makes up a little more than a third of the entire population. This is where we've been planting churches over the last 12 years. We're in Sao Paulo and we work among the poor class in government housing projects. In 2012, we planted our fourth church plant, the Oasis Baptist Church, in one of the most populated districts of the city, Cidade Tiradentes. It's home to the largest government housing projects in Latin America. There are roughly a million people living in six square miles. God had already provided prime property for the church, but we began the church in our home, and as we worked, God added to our church through our home ministry, and we began developing the property for church use. Over the last four years, we have had several building projects that have each come as a result of a need to accommodate our growth. Most recently, we built an education building that will provide a much needed space to disciple Christians and new believers, and to train a new generation of leaders. The church has several outreach ministries that directly engage people who live in that district. Corporate worship and teaching and preaching happen every Sunday and throughout the week. Evangelism, discipleship, and in-home Bible studies take place every week. The church runs a sports ministry for boys, and this involves providing breakfast, teaching them the Word of God, and playing sports once a week on Saturdays. This particular ministry opens doors for us to meet new families in the district through home visits. Over the last year, we have transitioned the direction of the church over to a Brazilian pastor an assistant pastor, and the church leadership. Their goal for this church is that it becomes a gospel-centered church that makes and multiplies disciples in the district, in the city, and throughout Brazil. As our partners in ministry, you are part of that. Churches have been established where no churches were before, and thousands of boys and girls, men and women, have had their eternal destinies changed by Jesus Christ through your partnership. As we move forward, our goal is to start another church in Brazil. Brazil is a big country and the doors of opportunity are open everywhere. We ask that you continue to pray for us and partner with us as we seek to win Brazil for Christ. tudo bem? That's good night in Portuguese, to Temple Baptist Church. I wanted to start by saying thank you so much for your partnership in our ministry and in our lives. Uh, this church has partnered with us over the last two years, and uh, everything you've seen in that picture, you're a part of. And there's countless boys and girls, men and women, and their lives have been changed by Jesus Christ, yet you're a partner in that ministry, and we just want to thank you so much for that. Uh, Before I dive into the message this evening, I just want to take a few minutes just to kind of explain when we go back to Brazil, what's our next step in ministry. And uh, before I forget, it's my wife over here. Just put your hand up. It's my wife, Erin. And I've got five kids. The oldest is Samuel. He's 11. And the youngest is Benjamin. He's three years old. And they're scattered somewhere here on on the church campus. It took us forever to figure out where they went. But um, when we go back to Brazil this next year we're going back to the city of Sao Paulo, Uh, we feel strongly that the future of really humanity will play itself out in big cities across the globe and Sao Paulo is one of those cities. Uh, Just just to kind of wrap your mind around this one statistic, I know there's a lot of facts and figures in there, but the city of Sao Paulo, a thousand people move there every single day. A thousand people. And that's a million people every three years that move to this one city. And it's just one of dozens of cities around the world that are growing at about the same rate. And as a missionary, if I could assemble a team of missionaries just to reach the existing uh, thousand people that come in every day, I would never even touch the 30 million people. Just think about that. Hey, let's just try to reach the people that are coming in, a thousand people a day. You'll never touch the existing population. Uh, We work in the East Zone of Sao Paulo, okay? And the East Zone is about 5 million people, okay? Just the East Zone. And in the East Zone of Sao Paulo, uh, there may be two dozen uh, biblical churches, churches that you know that you're going to go in on a Sunday and hear the gospel preached. The Bible's going to be opened, and the Bible's going to be explained, and people are going to grow through that teaching. And in the East Zone of Sao Paulo, my wife and I were the only missionaries of any denomination that work in that zone of the city. So five million people, about a dozen churches, and one missionary family. So the task is just humongous, humongous. Uh, When we go back to Brazil, we're gonna make an adjustment in our ministry. Um, Over the last 12 years of our ministry, uh, we've been involved in what I call just addition church planning, where we just go in and we meet people in a community, Uh, We develop relationships. We win people to the Lord. We meet in our home. And out of that group of people, we disciple people and form a church out of those disciples. Um, When we go back to Brazil, we are going to seek to mobilize those existing churches in a church planning effort through the churches that already exist. So we're going to be doing the same types of stuff, but we're going to be helping the churches that already exist multiply themselves. Uh, So as a missionary, I'm going to be stepping back and mobilizing churches, and so it's not addition church planning, it's multiplication church planning. And uh, we really feel that uh, even though it's going to take a lot of work for us to make this adjustment, over the course of time, that maximizes our effort and uh, our ministry of service in the country of Brazil. Before we get into this, does anybody have any questions about anything you saw about our ministry Um, I'm only here every couple years, and so you guys get great preaching every single week. uh, So I just always make it a point to, if anybody does have a question, just to give them an opportunity to ask. Anything at all? Anybody want to know anything about Brazil, about our ministry? All right, let's go to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, verse 19, 20, and 21. Acts chapter 11, 19, 20, and 21. The Bible tells us, Now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to none but unto the Jews only. And some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which when they were come to Antioch, they spake unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. Dear Father, fathers, we look at this passage of scripture this evening, and we unpack the truths therein, that you could just teach our hearts, and that we could leave here different than the way we entered here this evening, Lord. Thank you for this church, and thank you so much for all that you're doing here locally in Coleman. And thank you for this church and their partnership in ministry, not just with myself in Brazil, but many missionaries around the world, Lord. Thank you so much, Lord, in your name I pray. Amen. As we look at this passage of Scripture here, it may be uh, slightly unusual for a missions emphasis service for us to come on this passage. But I'm going to stop for a minute and just kind of explain to you the context of where this passage is at. If you look to Acts chapter 13, that's where missions really starts in the New Testament. Um, The church at Antioch, it's that church where Barnabas and Paul, uh, that's where they started getting some experience in ministry. They served in that local church. And we see in the first few verses of Acts chapter 13 that they're sent out from that church. The Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit said, separate unto me Paul and Barnabas for the work that I have for them. And so in Acts chapter 13 and Acts chapter 14, what we see is the first missionary journey. You may remember in the back of your Bible a map that has those three missionary journeys. Well, the first missionary journey, it starts right there in Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. And they go, they go a bunch of places, and then they come back to that church at Antioch. It's really their home church, their sending church. So uh, instead of focusing on on that movement of sending missionaries, because we understand that many people are sent. Uh, I was sent to Brazil, and there's some of you here that I believe possibly will be sent someday to the mission field. Other people are called to go, called to go. But many of you are called to stay, There's people that need to stay here at the church, and you guys need to serve here at the local church. So what happened in this church before Acts chapter 13? You know, what was happening locally? What was happening at the onset of this church plant that made it such a a thriving model for us to follow even today? Well, if you look at Acts chapter 11, verse 19, it says, "...now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen." Well, who is this Stephen, and what is this persecution that they're talking about? So before we get into this story, really it takes place in verse 20 and 21, we need to look at the story before the story, the story behind the story. As Jeff mentioned, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we have the Lord Jesus Christ. He's standing there before the disciples, and he says, Hey, go, go here locally, start in Jerusalem, near But go far to the uttermost parts of the earth. Yet we see in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 3 that they really didn't do that early on. They just kind of stayed right there. If you remember Peter, uh, he went out on the day of Pentecost and he preached just an an awesome message. 3,000 men came to Christ. You know, the next chapter in scriptures and a few days later in the chronology of that, he preaches again and 5,000 men come to Christ. You know, many historians believe that up to 20% of the population of Jerusalem came to Christ as their personal Lord and Savior in the early days of the church. Now imagine a church in which 20% of the population of your local environment were followers of Christ Jesus. Hey, why do we need to leave? I mean, things are going great. You know, it's great to be a part of a church that is growing and just busting at the seams and that is what was happening right there in Jerusalem in chapter 2 chapter 3 needs were being met and everything was going on just fine until chapter 7 chapter 7 we've got this guy Stephen one of the deacons in the early church and he stands up and just preaches an eloquent message but at the end of that message he gets stoned and he's the first Christian martyr Chapter 8, verse 1 tells us that they laid their clothes, the people that were stoning Stephen, at the feet of one named Saul. We know that to be Paul, and we know about his conversion that takes place. I've heard it said before that if we don't follow in obedience, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Acts chapter 8, verse 1 fulfills itself in us. In other words, if we don't obey that commission to go near, far, in between, everywhere. Acts chapter 8 verse 1, which is that persecution that takes place, it happens actually to scatter us into all the earth. We see in Acts chapter 8 that everywhere that Christ told us to go is eventually where people ended up. Now fast forward to this text, Acts chapter 11 verse 19. Look what it says once again. Now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen. So you see where we're at now? We just fast forwarded through scriptures and we have a group of guys that they come upon this place, Antioch. Not only is there a story behind the story, but there is a city within the story. In this context right here of Acts chapter 11, and we're going to see this in Acts chapter 13 as well, there is a city. This city is named Antioch. Interestingly, with a population of half a million, Antioch was the third largest city in the world in its day. Rome was number one, and it was the political capital of the world. Alexandria was the second largest city, and it would be called the academic capital of the world. But they say Antioch was the cultural center of the world. Many historians compare Antioch to present-day, modern New York City. Just a culturally savvy location. It's where everything went down. It's where the uh, cultural elites lived. It's where they made their living. Just a little information about Antioch. It'll blow you away. Its magnificent buildings helped give it the name Antioch the Golden. And one of the reasons is Main Street of Antioch, ancient Antioch, was four miles long and it was paved with white marble. And on each sides there were marble, white marble colonnades for four miles. It was the only city in the ancient world that had its streets lit at night. Pretty impressive for a city 2,000 years ago. Yet this is the city these guys came unto. If you look at Acts chapter 11, verse 19, uh, a group of men came there. So we're going to spend the rest of the time this evening looking at these groups of men. They're actually, in this story, two groups. And at the end of this message this evening, we're going to apply it to our situation, this church, our context. Verse 19 continues and says this, that these men... They came and they preached the word to none, but unto the Jews only. It's pretty interesting that the passage says, they preached the word to none, no one. Just imagine if it ended right there, but to the Jews only. Our first group that we look at in this passage here this evening is the group that I like to call, it's just us four and no more. It's just us four and no more. If we take a look at these guys, it's easy to throw them under the bus for not preaching to the Gentiles as well. But in all honesty, these were men that were persecuted in Jerusalem, and they could have easily denied Christ in Jerusalem. It would have been real easy for them to say, you know, I like my job, I like where I live, I like being close to my family, and I don't like being persecuted. So, no, I'm not a follower of Christ. But they didn't do that. They were persecuted, and they went to this city of Antioch. And going to the city of Antioch, they just found people that looked like them, sounded like them, dressed like them, had the same cultural dynamics that they had. And they said, hey, we know those guys. Let's go over there and preach the word to those guys. In other words, they had a winning method. Preach the word. Preaching the word of God is always a winning method. That's what got them in trouble back in Jerusalem. Yet when they came to Antioch, they were selective in how they preached the word. So they had a winning method, but they had the wrong model. They preached to the Jew only. Now, if you stop and think about this, why did they do this? Well, this was what was standard in the early church. Actually, if you look back one chapter in, into chapter 10 of Acts... You'll see that Peter had a real difficult time with this. Remember the story of Cornelius? You know, Peter just had a difficult time preaching the gospel to somebody that wasn't like him. They didn't look like him. They didn't sound like him. They weren't from his tribe, his clan, his group. And so in a sense, these "us four and no more," they were just following protocol. If we stop and think about these men. They listen to the wrong people. You know, a lot of times, we listen to the wrong people. When a leader listens to the wrong person, to the wrong idea, even though it may contain truth, if it's not the full truth, we're limiting the dynamic of what the gospel can do in a community. These people were saved. The gospel, they accepted But the gospel hadn't owned them. So many times I think that in our modern day church, we have a lot of people, they're saved. And they understand what the gospel is. They've grasped the gospel. But the gospel hasn't owned them. When the gospel doesn't own us completely, we limit the extent and the efficacy of it in our communities. In the world. So we have this group of guys here. It's just us four and no more. That's it. Just us four and no more. I don't know if you ever watched the movie The Patriot. But in the movie The Patriot. You have the Redcoats. And then you have the Continental Army. You guys remember the movie? Yeah, the Redcoats and the Continental Army. And... The model of warfare presented in that movie was a model of warfare that had been followed for centuries in Europe. Which it was basically, stand, stand 500 men abreast in a square, in infantry squares, what, would, what it was called. And in open field, just take turns volleying shots into one another. Now does that make sense to anybody? <laughs> it just doesn't make sense. And then it comes along Mel Gibson. Okay? Mel Gibson, he's part of the militiamen. Okay? And, and in real history, the militiamen actually existed. Okay? Mel Gibson didn't, but the militiamen did. A- and they made a decision, just revolutionary. We're going to stand behind trees. Just revolutionary. Did you know that the militiamen were not accepted by the regulars, which were the Continental Army? They were vilified by the enemy. For not playing by the rules. But it's because the militiamen fought the way they did that we are a free country today. And that we don't have a king and a queen. And that we speak proper English. In other words, they won the war, get this, by breaking formation. By breaking formation. Now jump to the text. Look what the text says in verse 20. Verse 20 says, and some of them. The idea here in the text is, but there were some. But there were a few. Now look what it says. There were a few here in verse 20, men of Cyprus and Cyrene. That's very important. You see, the original group, they had been persecuted way back from Jerusalem onward. And along the way they picked up a band of brothers. They won a few here, they won a few there. Yet all these guys were Jews. Hey, come on. You look like us, you sound like us, you walk like us. Join the us for no more crowd. And that's what happened. Yet these guys in verse 20, they hadn't heard that original message. Maybe from Peter or from one of the other apostles. Hey, stick with the Jews. Don't talk to any Gentiles. Yet here in verse 20 we see that these two guys, and I say two guys because it just says two locations, it could have been more than two guys. But at least two. So you have the us four and no more, but the second group here is we're only two, but we're winning a few. We're only two, but we're going to win a few. These guys broke formation. Look what they did in verse 20. Which, when they came to Antioch, they spake unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. Verse 21, this is the verse all of us want in our lives, in our churches In our ministry, in our communities, verse 21 says this. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. Once again, verse 21. The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. So, with the few minutes we have remaining, let's look at these two guys. Let's look at these two guys. First of all, if we look at these guys, we understand a few things about them. You know, the gospel, when it gets a hold of us and it owns us, a few things become abundantly clear. First of all, if Jesus is Lord, no distance is too far. Is Jesus Lord of your life? No distance is too far. If Jesus is Lord of your life, no price is too high. If Jesus is Lord of your life, here it comes. No person is too different that you're not able to approach him. I got one amen. (laughs) There must be some biblical truth in it. If Jesus is Lord of our lives, no person is too different that we can't approach them. Folks, I I hope you realize that that is the essence of the gospel. Christ Jesus, Son of God, descended from above to be born in a manger. Think of that gap. Think of the gap that he closed in order to redeem, to buy back, to reconcile a people unto himself. You know, I'm living, you know, we came back from Brazil and my in-laws live in Nashville. And so when we come back, we always look around Nashville for some place to live. Okay, Uh, I'm I'm from Ohio. Okay, northern Ohio and I'm an Ohio State Buckeye fan. Sorry, got one over there, two, okay? See me later, guys. But we, we live in Nashville, and we usually find something pretty close to town where we could stay in, a missions house, but this time, we, the only place we could find was in a little place called Westmoreland, Tennessee. Now, Westmoreland, Tennessee is in the sticks, okay? I, I live about five miles from... Uh, The Kentucky State line uh, in the middle of nowhere. So we moved into this little house, and the first time that I went to buy groceries, you got Fred's and you got Dave's Food Town. That's all you got, Fred's and Dave's Food Town. So I walk in, and folks are looking at you, and they they know you're not from there. They're just kind of eyeing you. Scoping you out, and they know you're not from Westmoreland, Tennessee. One, you ain't got a big old truck. You ain't got a wad of chew in your mouth. You're not spitting in the inside, you know, the grocery store. You've got all your teeth, and so on and so on. And you know, you, you stop and think about that. We're surrounded by people that aren't like us. And in order for us to share the gospel with them, we first have to smile and say hi to them. It's really hard to share the gospel without saying hi, without stopping, without entering their circle of influence somehow. Those people are all around us. The grocery store, the gas station, the YMCA, at the park, wherever we're at. That's what Jeff's talking about when he says, locally, near, our Jerusalem. Yeah, there is Brazil, there is China, there is Nepal, there is Africa. But this is what I want you to get this evening. What these two guys did, not only birthed a church, but it birthed a missions movement. Out of which Paul and Barnabas were sent as missionaries out of which hundreds of churches were started. I know this church has a goal of starting hundreds of churches over the next several years through its ministry partners locally, near, and around the world. Yet it's not as simple as just throwing money at it. The church has to be locally what these two guys were to the church there at Antioch. Now, to kind of look at these guys' lives a little bit, first of all, these guys that were part of the... were only two, but we're winning a few. First of all, they were courageous. They were courageous. Stop and think about it. They were from Cyprus, which is an island in the Mediterranean. And the other guy was from northern Africa. So, they're not educated guys, most likely. They're guys that are from out of town. And they step in to the third largest city in the world. That's the cultural capital of the world. And they have a decision to make. The same decision the other group had. To go the easy route or to seek out those who were lost. I heard a statement this past week that really shook me Um, in how i view obstacles in life the statement goes more or less like this i can't give you an exact quote but we don't reach our goals not because of the obstacles but because an easier path is always more evident did you get that we don't reach our goals not because of the obstacles a lot of times we think it's the obstacles that stops us from reaching our goals We don't reach our goals because an easier path is always more obvious and evident to us. You guys have a goal in church planning? An easier path will present itself, guaranteed. Locally, right here, it's always easier for you to seek out the person that looks like you, acts like you, dresses like you, sounds like you, walks like you, and so on and so on and so forth. In order to actually reach people that aren't like us, which, by the way, are the ones that most likely need Christ, we've got to say, you know, I'm going to step out and just get this, be obedient. Some are called to go. I'm called to go. Some are called to stay. But all of us are called to be obedient, folks. All of us are. So, these two guys, let's just say they're country boys, I don't know. These two country boys, just imagine two country boys from the sticks of Tennessee, cut off blue jeans, a white tank top, you know, uh, I don't know, just a wild haircut, okay? And And they step into New York City. These guys step in to Antioch. They go and they speak to the Greeks. Why were they courageous? First of all, they were disadvantaged culturally. Intellectually, socially, they were disadvantaged. That's obvious. Folks, on all standard measurements, we are disadvantaged in the world. When you just square us up and you measure our abilities, our work skills, what we're able to do in and of ourselves, we are disadvantaged. But, but... Although these men were disadvantaged, culturally, intellectually and on probably a whole bunch of other standards, they realized that they had God, His Son, His word and their testimony. They understood Matthew 28, "All authority is given unto me. Go." They understood that even if they were alone, that they had God by them that put them in the majority. This affected their resolve. They realized that their message was Jesus plus nothing, and that's everything. That affects how you preach, folks. You step into the fight with, you know, a little more to you than just yourself because you have God behind you. Did you know that in scriptures, God never asks us to be big? He's big. He shows up big when we simply follow in obedience, Not only were these guys courageous, but they were conduits. Verse 21 tells us the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. What were they conduits of? First of all, they were conduits of the message of Jesus. They preached in their weakness, and God worked in a way that only he can work. They were conduits of the message, but they also were conduits of a miracle. The salvation of one's soul, folks, is a miracle. Do you know what 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2 says about what the Greeks thought about the gospel? The Bible says that the preaching of the gospel, the Greeks considered it foolishness. Just foolishness. Folks... Do you realize that the world thinks today that the gospel is foolishness? It's just absurd. It's nuts. They consider us crazies. And so when somebody comes to Christ and they were part of that bunch, it's a miracle. It's just a miracle. And it's done Through the power of preaching. Not only were they conduits of a miracle. But they were conduits of a multiplication process. Now we don't have time to get into this tonight. But you know what happens here? This continues to evolve. More people come to Christ in the subsequent verses. Revival breaks out. So much so that the Bible says the news of it reaches Jerusalem. Now folks, I'm here to tell you that if 5 or 10 or 15 people come to Christ, that's not news anywhere. And so, we're talking enough people coming to Christ that the church that was 20% of the population of Jerusalem said, whoa, what's going on up there in Antioch? And so, they sent a delegation, Barnabas is the man, they send him all the way up to Antioch. To see what's going on. Barnabas arrives. He says, You know what? Things are exploding on the scene because the grace of God is manifest here. I'm going to get Paul. And he goes and gets Paul, brings him back. Him and Paul spend a year just teaching this church. And they teach this church and eventually are sent out as missionaries. Now let's just bring bring this home. Okay. I just wanna I'm not done with everything I have, but my time's running out, so we're gonna apply this here this evening, okay? Folks, this is a real story in a real city made up of real folks in a situation of life much worse than our own. A lot of times we think that what's happening in in our day and age, the cultural landscape of our times, the political landscape of our times, everything that's going on is just something new, that's never happened in the history of, of humankind. And that it's never been worse. Ever since I was a kid, I've been taught you know, this setup for how we should uh, respond to circumstances in our lives. Okay? There's an event. There's always an event. There's our response, and there's outcome. Out of those three things, we can't control the event. We can't control history, folks. We can't control much of what happens around us. You know, the outcome, we can't control the outcome either. We cannot control the outcome. We can only control our response. Our response. Our response to what, Jonathan? First of all, our response to our times and God's will for our lives. You know, I've, I've always used the following matrix for um, how I make decisions. Okay, Second Corinthians chapter 5, it gives us several motivations of why we should do what we're doing. In other words, why we should respond well. First of all, chapter 5, verse 10 of 2 Corinthians tells us that there will be a day in the future. Folks, I hope you realize that there will be a day in the future where we will stand before Christ... As saved, redeemed people, not to be judged by God, but we will stand before Christ. That is a day in the future. Second Corinthians chapter five also tells us that the love of God, the love of Christ, constrains us. You know what that is? That's a day in the past. You know what that affects? It affects our worship. When we look to the cross, we worship differently. When we look to that day in the future, we work differently. The third motivation right there in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is this. That we therefore are ambassadors for Christ. Now if you didn't get anything tonight, get this folks. There will be a day where we will stand before Christ. And give an account of how we responded. We're in that day because of that day. The day Christ was nailed to a cross and shed his blood for me and you. We worship differently because of that day. We work differently because of that day. But we are ambassadors for Christ when? Today. In our generation, I wasn't born into the 60s. I was born when I was born and placed on the face of the earth in the time that I was placed to engage head-on the Greeks of our days. To present the gospel of Jesus Christ to as many as would hear. Whether they looked like me or not, or sounded like me or not. So these events are events of real people, real circumstances. How will we respond? We need to respond courageously. To finish up, I have a few real life stories that I just recently Last week, read in a a publication that I get, a Christian publication. And it talked about the courageous, courageous efforts of a few to win people to Christ that were not like them. There's a man, his name is Nabil Qureshi. And he says in this interview, Allahu Akbar, these are the first words of the Muslim call to prayer. And these were also the first words ever spoken to me, moments after I was born. I've been told by my father that he softly recited them to me in my ear, as his father had done to him and as his forefathers had done for their sons since the time of Muhammad. The words my ancestors passed down to me are more than a ritual. They came to define my life as a Muslim living in the West. By age five, I had recited the entire Quran in Arabic and memorized the last seven chapters. And by age 15, I committed the last 15 chapters to memory. But thanks to a young man, my first year of college, who courageously befriended me, and over the course of years, lived out the gospel message in a real, tangible way. There was no denying that his courageous relationship with me is what led me to a personal relationship with Christ Jesus. How many college students are in here today where somewhere on your campus there is someone that looks different than what you see in the mirror every day? They need somebody that's courageous. Rosaria Butterfield says in her interview that the word Jesus stuck in my throat like an elephant tusk. No matter how hard I choked, I couldn't hack it out. All those who professed the name of Jesus commanded my pity and wrath. As a lesbian university professor, I tired of students who seemed to believe that knowing Jesus meant knowing little else. After my tenured book was published... I used my post to advance the understandable allegiance of my leftist position as a professor. But my life changed by another woman in the university who befriended me and over the course of time courageously lived out the gospel message. I came to Christ Jesus leaving behind everything that I believed and stood for to accept something better. And lastly, Jordan Mung. She says in her interview, I don't know when I first became a skeptic. It must have been around age four when my mother found me arguing with another child at my birthday party, saying, but how do you know the Bible says it's true? By age 11, my atheism was widely known in middle school. As I set off in 2008 to begin my freshman year at Harvard, I could never expected the change that awaited me. It was a brisk November when I met John Joseph Porter. Our conversations initially revolved around conservative politics, but soon gravitated towards religion. Joseph lived out the faith that he professed in a way that was so strong that I had no arguments because his life testimony shouted much louder than anything that I could present to him. Through him, I came to Christ. We do not live anymore in a Christian nation. We don't. And if you think you do, you're living in a bubble, under a can, somewhere. Spend some time in downtown Birmingham, Nashville, Atlanta, smaller cities even like Chattanooga, and you will realize that most of the people that are millennials, educated, or foreigners that live here today Which, by the way, by 2050, will be the majority. Unless we respond, okay? Unless we respond. We may start 500 churches around the world. But eventually, we will lose our effectiveness here. And then it won't even matter. You know, the church at Antioch. Listen to this, folks. Two men, two people, said we're only two, but we're going to win a few. I would dare to say that we still have people that say it's just us four no more. You know, we need to be courageous. We need to look at the world around us, and engage it with the gospel of Jesus Christ, preaching Jesus, death, resurrection, preaching his return imminently, and doing it in such a way that we love people, the objective isn't to throw people under the bus. It's to actually win them and reconcile them. It's to close the gap in love and grace. Later on in Acts chapter 11, and I'm already out of time, but I'll share this anyways. It's the first place in scriptures where the Christians were known as Christians. Now, do you know that word Christian? It's a combination of Christos, which is Christ. It's a follower of Christ. But also of Christos, which is the word for slave, which translated is this useful. Useful follower of Christ. Folks, you know how we're useful to the kingdom? You know how we're useful? A name has to be attached to something that we're doing. A name. I gave you three names tonight. We we can't be worried about, when I'm in Sao Paulo, I can't worry about 30 million. got to worry about one. One. Are you useful? Are you engaging? Are you part of the group, just us four or no more? Or are you willing to say, hey, we're only two, but we're going to win a few? Or better yet, I'm only one. But I'm going to win some. Make that decision tonight. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this church. And thank you for your work.